0: We're coming to the end of our story tonight, and we would love to know what you would like to hear next. Head to our website, sleepybookshelf.com, and submit your vote. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth your host, and it's lovely to have you here with me. Tonight we'll be completing our current book, The Time Machine, but before we do, let's take some time here for yourself to breathe and relax. Take a big stretch and release any tension you might be holding in your muscles. Focus on how your body feels and allow yourself to physically let go. Next, let's take a deep breath in. Hold it for a moment and exhale. Breathing out all your worries and concerns. Once more, inhale. Hold it a moment. And exhale. Wonderful. Previously, the time traveler had managed to get himself and Wiener. To the palace of green porcelain and found what seemed to be a museum of the future in ruin. There were galleries and display cabinets, skeletons of dinosaurs and machinery. He found a pack of matches, somehow untouched by decay, and a pot of camphor, which he thought would burn well to keep away the Morlocks. He also picked up a crowbar as both a weapon and a tool for breaking into the base of the Sphinx. But the palace was not a safe haven from the underworld, so he carried Weena back through the forest in order to reach her home before nightfall. By the time they reached the forest, The sun was going down. He felt the Morlocks hands on him and placed Wiener down to strike a match. By the time his match was lit, they were running away, but Wiener lay lifeless at his feet. He had managed to get so turned round, he didn't know which way was out, and the light had faded quickly so he decided to set up camp where they were. He collected dry twigs and leaves for a fire and made sure Wiener was safe before he sat. He hadn't slept now for two days and closed his eyes for just a second. But it appeared he'd fallen quite asleep because when he opened them, his fire was out. there were more locks all over him. He began to fight them off before noticing they were running away of their own accord. He looked up to see his fire had spread into the forest and was now all around him. There was chaos, and Wiener was nowhere to be found he got into the open and sat on the hill, watching the nightmare unfold as the fire took over until dawn. And here we pick back up with the time traveler continuing on to the white sphinx. So lie back and relax as I turn to the last pages of The Time Machine Chapter Thirteen The Trap of the White Sphinx About eight or nine. In the morning, I came to the same seat of yellow metal from which I had viewed the world upon the evening of my arrival. I thought of my hasty conclusions upon that evening. could not refrain from laughing bitterly at my confidence. Here was the same beautiful scene, the same abundant foliage, The same splendid palaces and magnificent ruins, the same silver river running between its fertile banks. The gay robes of the beautiful people moved hither and thither among the trees. Some were bathing in exactly the place where I had saved Wiener. that suddenly gave me a keen stab of pain. And like blots upon the large landscape rose the couplers above the ways to the underworld. I understood now what all the beauty of the overworld people covered. Very pleasant was their day, as pleasant as the day of the cattle in the field. Like the cattle, they knew of no enemies and provided against no needs, and their end was the same. I grieved to think how brief the dream of the human intellect had been. It had set itself steadfastly towards comfort and ease, a balanced society with security and permanency as its watchword, it had attained its hopes, come to this at last. Once life and property must have reached almost absolute safety, the rich had been assured of his wealth and comfort, the toiler assured of his life and work. No doubt in that perfect world, there had been no unemployed problem, no social question left unsolved, and a great quiet had followed. It is a law of nature we overlook that intellectual versatility is compensation for change, danger, and trouble. An animal, perfectly in harmony with its environment, is a perfect mechanism. Nature never appeals to intelligence until habit and instinct are useless. There is no intelligence where there is no need for change. Only those animals partake of intelligence that have to meet a huge variety of needs and dangers. So as I see it, the upper world man had drifted towards his feeble prettiness and the underworld to mere mechanical industry. But that perfect state had lacked one thing even for mechanical perfection, absolute permanency. Apparently, as time went on, the feeding of an underworld, however it was affected, become disjointed. Mother Necessity, who had been staved off for a few thousand years, came back again, and she began below. The underworld, being in contact with machinery which, however perfect, still needs some little thought outside habit, had probably retained perforce rather more initiative if less of every other human character, than the upper. And when other sustenance failed them, they turned to what old habit had hitherto forbidden. So I say I saw it in my last view of the world of 802,701. It may be as wrong an explanation as mortal wit could invent "'Tis how the thing shaped itself to me, and as that I give it to you. After the fatigues, excitements, and terrors of the past days, and in spite of my grief, this seat and the tranquil view and the warm sunlight were very pleasant. I was very tired and sleepy." soon my theorizing passed into dozing. Catching myself at that, I took my own hint, and spreading myself out upon the turf, I had a long and refreshing sleep. I awoke a little before sunsetting. And I now felt safe against being caught napping by the Morlocks And stretching myself, I came on down the hill towards the white sphinx. I had my crowbar in one hand, and the other hand playing with the matches in my pocket. Now came a most unexpected thing. As I approached the pedestal of the sphinx, I found the bronze valves were open they had slid down into grooves. At that, I stopped short before them, hesitating to enter. Within was a small apartment, and on a raised place in the corner of this was the time machine. I had the small levers in my pocket, so here after all my elaborate preparations for the siege of the White Sphinx, was a meek surrender. I threw my iron bar away, almost sorry not to use it. A sudden thought came into my head as I stooped towards the portal. For once, at least, I grasped the mental operations of the Morlocks Suppressing a strong inclination to laugh, I stepped through the bronze frame and up to the time machine. I was surprised to find it had been carefully oiled and cleaned. I had suspected since that the Morrocks had even partially taken it to pieces while trying in their dim way to grasp its purpose. Now as I stood and examined it, finding a pleasure in the mere touch of the contrivance, the thing I had expected happened. The bronze panels suddenly slid up and struck the frame with a clang. I was in the dark, trapped, so the Morlocks thought. And to that I chuckled gleefully. I could already hear their murmuring laughter as they came towards me. Very calmly, I tried to strike the match. I had only to fix on the levers and depart, then like a ghost. But I had overlooked one little thing the matches were that abominable kind that light only on the box. You may imagine how all my calm vanished. The little brutes were close upon me. One touched me. I made a sweeping blow in the dark at them with their levers and began to scramble into the saddle of the machine. Then one hand came upon me, and another. Then I simply had to fight against their persistent fingers for my levers, and at the same time feel for the studs over which these fitted. One indeed, they almost got away from me. As it slipped from my hand, I had to butt in the dark with my head to recover it. It was a nearer thing than the fight in the forest, I think, this last scramble. But at last, the lever was fixed and pulled over. The clinging hands slipped from me. The darkness presently fell from my eyes. Found myself in the same grey light and tumult I have already described. Chapter 14 The Further Vision I have already told you of the sickness and confusion that comes with the time travelling. And this time I was not seated properly in the saddle, sideways, in an unstable fashion. For an indefinite time, I clung to the machine as it swayed and vibrated, quite unheeding how I went. And when I brought myself to look at the dials again, I was amazed to find where I had arrived. One dial records days, and another thousands of days another millions of days, and another thousands of millions. Now, instead of reversing the levers, I had pulled them over so as to go forward with them. But when I came to look at these indicators, I found that the thousands hand was sweeping ground as fast as the seconds of a hand of a watch into futurity. As I drove on, A peculiar change crept over the appearance of things. The palpitating grayness grew darker then, though I was still traveling with prodigious velocity. The blinking succession of day and night, which was usually indicative of a slower pace, returned and grew more and more marked. This puzzled me very much at first. The alternations of night and day grew slower, so did the passage of the sun across the sky, till they seemed to stretch through centuries. At last, steady twilight brooded over the earth, twilight only broken now and then when a comet glared across the darkening sky. The band of light that had indicated the sun had long since disappeared, for the sun had ceased to set, it simply rose and fell in the west, and grew ever broader and more red. All trace of the moon had vanished, the circling of the stars growing slower and slower given place to creeping points of light. At last, some time before I stopped, the sun, very red and large, halted, motionless upon the horizon. A vast dome, glowing with a dull heat, and now and then suffering a momentary extinction, At one time, it had for a little while glowed more brilliantly again, but it speedily reverted to its sullen red heat. I perceived by this slowing down of its rising and setting that the work of the tidal drag was gone. The earth had come to rest with one face to the sun. Even as in our own time, the moon faces the earth. Very cautiously, for I remembered my former headlong fall, I began to reverse my motion. Slower and slower went the circling hands, until the thousands one seemed motionless, and the daily one was no longer a mere mist upon its scale still slower, until the dim outlines of a desolate beach grew visible. I stopped very gently and sat upon the time machine, looking round. The sky was no longer blue. Northeastward, it was inky black, and out of the blackness shone brightly and steadily the pale white stars. Overhead, it was a deep red and starless, and southeastward it grew brighter to a glowing scarlet where, cut by the horizon, lay the huge hull of the sun, red and motionless. The rocks about me were of a harsh reddish colour and all trace of life that I could see at first was the intensely green vegetation that covered every projecting point on their southeastern face. It was the same rich green that one sees on forest moors, or on the lichen in caves, plants which, like these, grow in a perpetual twilight, The machine was standing on a sloping beach. The sea stretched away to the southwest to rise into a sharp, bright horizon against the wan sky. There were no breakers and no waves, for not a breath of wind was stirring. Only a slight, wheely swell rose and fell like a gentle breathing, and showed that the eternal sea was still moving and living, and along the margin, where the water sometimes broke, was a thick incrustation of salt, pink under the lurid sky. There was a sense of oppression in my head and I noticed that I was breathing very fast. The sensation reminded me of my only experience of mountaineering, and from that I judged the air to be more rarefied than it is now. Far away, up the desolate slope, I heard a harsh scream, and saw a thing like a huge white butterfly go slanting, and fluttering up to the sky, and circling, disappear over some low hillocks beyond. The sound of its voice was so dismal that I shivered, seated myself more firmly upon the machine. Looking around me again, I saw that quite near, what I had taken to be a reddish mass of rock, was moving, slowly towards me. Then I saw the thing was really a monstrous, crab-like creature. Can you imagine a crab as large as yonder table, with its many legs moving slowly and uncertainly, its big claws swaying, its long antenna waving and feeling, and its stalked eyes gleaming at you on either side of its metallic front. Its back was corrugated and ornamented with ungainly bosses, and a greenish incrustation blotched it here and there. I could see the many palps of its complicated mouth flickering and feeling as it moved, I stared at this sinister apparition crawling towards me. I felt a tickling on my cheek as though a fly had landed there. I tried to brush it away with my hand, but in a moment it returned. It almost immediately came another by my ear. I struck at this and caught something thread like. It was drawn swiftly out of my hand. With a frightful qualm, I turned and saw that I had grasped the antenna of another monster crab that stood just behind me. Its eyes were wriggling on their stalks. Its mouth was all alive with appetite, and its vast, ungainly claws, smeared with an algae slime, were descending upon me. In a moment, my hand was on the lever, and I had placed a month between myself and these monsters. But I was still on the same beach, and I saw them distinctly now as soon as I stopped. Dozens of them seemed to be crawling here and there in the somber light among the foliated sheets of intense scream. I cannot convey the sense of abominable desolation that hung over the world, the red, eastern sky, the northward blackness, the salt, dead sea, the stony beach, crawling with these foul, slow-stirring monsters, the uniform, poisonous-looking green of the likeness plants, the thin air that hurts one's lungs, all contributed to an effect. I moved on a hundred years, and there was the same red sun, a little larger, a little duller, the same dying sea, the same chill air, and the same crowd of earthy crustacea creeping in and out among the green weed and the red rock. And in the westward sky, I saw a curved, pale line like a vast new moon. So I travel, stopping ever and again in great strides of a thousand years or more, drawn on by the mystery of the Earth's fate, watching with strange fascination the sun grow larger Duller in the westward sky, and the life of the old earth ebb away. At last, more than 30 million years hence, the huge red hot dome of the sun had come to obscure nearly a tenth part of the darkening heavens. Then I stopped once more. For the crawling multitude of crabs had disappeared, and the red beach, save for its livid green liverworts and lichens, seemed lifeless. Now it was flecked with white. A bitter cold assailed me. Rare white flakes, ever and again, came eddying down. To the northeastward, The glare of snow lay under the starlight of the sable sky. I could see an undulating crest of hillocks, pinkish white. There were fringes of ice along the sea margin, drifting masses farther out. But the main expanse of that salt ocean, all crimson under the eternal sunset, still unfrozen. I looked about me to see if any traces of animal life remained. A certain, indefinable apprehension still kept me in the saddle of the machine, but I saw nothing moving in earth or sky or sea. The green slime on the rocks alone testified that life was not extinct. A shallow sandbank had appeared in the sea, and the water had receded from the beach. I fancied I saw some black object flopping about upon the bank, but it became motionless as I looked at it, and I judged that my eye had been deceived, and that the black object was merely a rock. The stars in the sky were intensely bright and seemed to me to twinkle very little. Suddenly, I noticed that the circular, westward outline of the sun had changed, that a concavity, a bay, had appeared in the curve. I saw this grow larger, and for a minute, perhaps, I stared aghast, this blackness that was creeping over the day. And then I realized that an eclipse was beginning. Either the moon or planet Mercury was passing across the sun's disk. Naturally, at first, I took it to be the moon, but there is much to incline me to believe what I really saw was the transit of an inner planet passing very near to the earth. The darkness grew apace. Cold wind began to blow in freshening gusts from the east, and the showering, white flakes in the air increased in number. From the edge of the sea came a ripple and a whisper. Beyond these lifeless sounds, the world was silent. Silent? It would be hard to convey the stillness of it. All the sounds of man, the bleating sheep, the cries of birds, the hum of insects, the stir that makes the background of our lives, all that was over. As the darkness thickened, Eddying flakes grew more abundant, dancing before my eyes. And the cold of the air more intense. Last, one by one, swiftly one after the other, the white peaks of the distant hills vanished into blackness. The breeze rose to a moaning wind. I saw the black central shadow of the eclipse sweeping towards me. In another moment, the pale stars alone were visible. All else was rayless obscurity. The sky was absolutely black. A horror of this great darkness came on me. The cold that smote to my marrow and the pain I felt in breathing overcame me. I shivered, and a deadly nausea seized me. Then, like a red-hot bow in the sky, peered the edge of the sun. got off the machine to recover myself. I felt giddy and incapable of facing the return journey. As I stood sick and confused, I saw again the moving thing upon the shore, There was no mistake now, but it was a moving thing against the red water of the sea. It was a round thing, the size of a football, perhaps, or it may be bigger, and tentacles trailed down from it. It seemed black against the weltering, blood-red water, and it was hopping fitfully about, Then I felt I was fainting, but a terrible dread of lying helpless in that remote and awful twilight sustained me while I clambered upon the saddle. Chapter 15 The Time Traveler's Return So I came back. For a long time, I must have been insensible upon the machine. Blinking succession of the days and nights were resumed. The sun got golden again. The sky blue. Breathed with greater freedom. The fluctuating contours of the land ebbed and flowed. The hands spun backward upon the dials. At last, I saw again the dim shadows of houses the evidences of a decadent humanity. These two changed and passed, and others came. Presently, when the million dial was at zero, I slackened the speed. I began to recognize our own, pretty and familiar architecture. A thousand's hand ran back to the starting point. The night and day, flat. Slower and slower. Then the old walls of the laboratory came round me. Very gently now, I slowed the mechanism down. I saw one little thing that seemed odd to me. I think I've told you that when I set out, before my velocity became very high, Mrs. Watchard had walked across the room, travelling as it seemed to me like a rocket. As I returned, I passed again across that minute when she traversed the laboratory, but now her every motion appeared to be the exact inversion of her previous ones. The door at the lower end opened, she glided quietly up to the laboratory, back foremost, and disappeared behind the door which she had previously entered. Just before that, I seemed to just see Hillier for a moment, but he passed like a flash. Then I stopped the machine and saw about me again the old, familiar laboratory. My tools, my appliances, just as I had left them. I got off the thing very shakily and sat down upon my bench. For several minutes I trembled, then I became calmer. Around me was my old workshop again, exactly as it had been. I might have slept there, and the whole thing had been a dream. And yet, not exactly. The thing had started from the southeast corner of the laboratory. It had come to rest again in the northwest, against the wall where you saw it. That gives you the exact distance from my little lawn to the pedestal of the white sphinx into which the Morlocks had carried my machine. For a time, my brain was stagnant. Presently, I got up and came through the passage here, limping because my heel was still painful and feeling sorely begrimmed. I saw the Pall Mall Gazette on the table by the door. I found the date was indeed today, and looking at the timepiece, saw the hour was almost eight o'clock. I heard your voices, the clatter of plates. I hesitated, I felt so sick and weak. Then I sniffed good, wholesome meat and opened the door upon you. Now you know the rest. I washed and dined, and now I'm telling you the story. Chapter 16 After the Story. I know, he said after a pause, that all this will be absolutely incredible to you. But to me, the one incredible thing is that I'm in this old familiar room, looking into your friendly faces and telling you these strange adventures. He looked at the medical man. No, I cannot expect you to believe it. Take it as a lie or a prophecy. Say I dreamed it in the workshop. Consider I have been speculating upon the destinies of our race until I have hatched this fiction. Treat my assertion of its truth as a mere stroke of art to enhance interest and taking it as a story. What do you think of it? He took up his pipe and began, in his old, accustomed manner, to tap it nervously upon the bars of the grate. There was a momentary stillness. The chairs began to creak and shoes scrape upon the carpet, I took my eyes off the time traveler's face and looked around at his audience. They were in the dark, and little spots of color swam before them. The medical man seemed absorbed in the contemplation of our host. The editor was looking hard at the end of his cigar, the sixth. The journalist fumbled for his watch. The others, as far as I remember, were motionless. The editor stood up with a sigh. What a pity it is you're not a writer of stories, he said, putting his hand on the time traveller's shoulder. You don't believe it? Well… The editor began. I thought not, the time traveller replied. He turned to us. Where are the matches? He said. The time traveller lit one and spoke over his pipe, puffing. To tell you the truth, I hardly believe it myself. And yet, his eye fell with a mute inquiry, Upon the withered flowers upon the little table. Then he turned over the hand holding his pipe, and I saw that he was looking at some half-heeled scars on his knuckles. The medical man rose, came to the lamp, and examined the flowers. The gymnasium's odd, he said. The psychologist leant forward to see, holding out his hand for a specimen. I'm hanged if it isn't a quarter to one, said the journalist. How shall we get home? Plenty of cabs at the station, said the psychologist. It's a curious thing, said the medical man. I certainly don't know the natural order of these flowers. May I have them? The time traveler hesitated. Then he said suddenly, certainly not. Where did you really get them? said the medical man. The time traveler put his hand to his head. He spoke like one who was trying to keep hold of an idea that eluded him. They were put into my pocket by Wiener when I traveled in time. He stared round the room. This room and you and the atmosphere of every day is too much for my memory. Did I ever make a time machine or a model of a time machine? Or is it all only a dream? They say life is a dream, a precious, poor dream at times. But I can't stand another that won't fit. It's madness. But where did the dream come from? I must look at that machine. If there is one. He caught up the lamp swiftly and carried it, flaring red, through the door into the corridor. We followed him. There, in the flickering light of the lamp, was the machine, sure enough, squat, ugly, and askew. A thing of brass, ebony, ivory, and translucent, glimmering cords. Solid to the touch, I put out my hand and felt the rail of it and with brown spots and smears upon the ivory and bits of grass and moss upon the lower parts and one rail bent to rye. The time traveller put the lamp down on the bench and ran his hand along the damaged rail. It's all right now, he said. The story I told you was true sorry to have brought you out here in the court. He took up the lamp, and in absolute silence, we returned to the smoking room. He came into the hall with us and helped the editor on with his coat. The medical man looked into his face with a certain hesitation, told him he was suffering from overwork, at which he laughed hugely. I remember him standing in the open doorway, bawling goodnight. I shared a cab with the editor, he thought the tale a gaudy lie. For my own part, I was unable to come to a conclusion. The story was so fantastic and incredible, the telling so credible and sober. I lay awake most of the night thinking about it. I determined to go the next day and see the time traveller again. I was told he was in the laboratory, and being on easy terms in the house, I went up to him. The laboratory, however, was empty. I stared for a minute at the time machine, put my hand out, and touched the lever. At that, a squat, substantial looking mass swayed like a bow shaken in the wind. Its instability startled me extremely. I had a queer reminiscence of the childish days when I used to be forbidden to meddle. I came back through the corridor. The time traveller met me in the smoking room. He was coming from the house. He had a small camera under one arm and a knapsack under the other. He laughed when he saw me and gave me an elbow to shake. I'm frightfully busy, said he, with that thing in there. But is it not some hoax? I said. Do you really travel through time? Really, and truly, I do. And here, he looked frankly into my eyes. He hesitated. His eye wandered about the room. I only want half an hour, he said. I know why you came, but it's awfully good of you. There's some magazines here. If you'll stop to lunch, I'll prove to you this time-travelling up to the hit. Specimens and all if you'll forgive my leaving you now. I consented, hardly comprehending then the full import of his words, And he nodded and went on down the corridor. I heard the door of the laboratory slam, seated myself in a chair, and took up a daily paper. What was he going to do before lunchtime? Then suddenly, I was reminded by an advertisement that I had promised to meet Richardson, the publisher, at two. I looked at my watch and saw I could barely save that engagement. I got up and went down the passage to tell the time traveler. As I took hold of the handle of the door, I heard an exclamation, oddly truncated at the end and a click, and a thud. A gust of air whirled round me as I opened the door, and from within, the sound of broken glass falling on the floor. The time traveller was not there. I seemed to see a ghostly, indistinct figure sitting in a whirling mass of black and brass for a moment figure so transparent that the bench behind, with its sheets of drawings, was absolutely distinct, but this phantasm vanished as I rubbed my eyes. The time machine had gone, save for a subsiding stir of dust. The further end of the laboratory was empty. The pain of the skylight had apparently just been blown in felt an unreasonable amazement. I knew that something strange had happened and for the moment could not distinguish what the strange thing might be. As I stood staring, the door into the garden opened and the manservant appeared. We looked at each other. Then ideas began to come. Has he gone out that way? Said I No sir No one has come out this way I was expecting to find him here And that I understood At the risk of disappointing Richardson I stayed on Waiting for the time traveller Waiting for the second Perhaps still stranger story And the specimens And photographs he would bring with him time beginning now to fear that I must wait a lifetime. The time traveller vanished three years ago, and as everybody knows now, he has never returned. Epilogue One cannot choose but wonder, will he ever return? may be that he swept back into the past and fell among the people of the Age of Unpolished Stone, into the abyss of the Cretaceous Sea, or among the grotesque Saurians, the huge reptilian brutes of the Jurassic times. He may even now, if I may use the phrase, be wandering on some placerous Haunted, oolotic coral reef or beside the lonely saline seas of the Triassic age? Or did he go forward into one of the nearer ages in which men are still men but with the riddles of our own time answered and its wearisome problems solved? into the manhood of the race, for I, for my own part, cannot think that these latter days of weak experiment, fragmentary theory, and mutual discord are indeed man's culminating time, I say for my own part. He, I know, for the question had been discussed among us long before the time machine was made, thought but cheerlessly of the advancement of mankind and saw in the growing pile of civilization only a foolish heaping that must inevitably fall back upon and destroy its makers in the end. If that is so, remains for us to live as though it were not so to me the future is still black and blank it's a vast ignorance lit at a few casual places by the memory of his story and I have by me for my comfort two strange white flowers shriveled now Brown and flat and brittle, to witness that even when mind and strength had gone, gratitude and a mutual tenderness still lived on in the heart of man. The end.